2 Kings chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to the word of God. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege for the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went out by way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now the bronze pillars, which were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea, which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, and all the bronze vessels which were used in the temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the basins, what was fine gold, and what was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea, and the stands, which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and the bronze capital was on it. The height of the capital was three cubits, with a network of pomegranates, on the capital all around, all of bronze, 
And the second pillar was like these with network. Then the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. From the city, he took one official who was overseer of the men of war and five of the king's advisors who were found in the city. And the scribe of the captain of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. Now as for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, over them. When all the captains of the forces, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Koreah, Sariah, the son of Tamimeth, Tanumeth, the Nittephite, and Jeazaniah, the son of Maacathite, they and their men. Gedaliah swore to them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. But it came about in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck Gedaliah down so that he died along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. Amen. So ends the reading of God's word and of the book of Second Kings. Amen. Kind of a sad ending, isn't it, to this history? Uh, history that includes... David and Solomon, the halcyon days of glory 
for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And here we come to the ruin of Jerusalem in this last chapter. It's a sad story, isn't it, boys and girls? The people of God who were in covenant with God, who had a relationship with God that none of the other nations had. And yet God brings this terrible judgment upon His own people, even a judgment more severe and worse than judgments He brought on pagan nations that did not know Him. Now why would God do this in His providence? Isn't God a loving God? Isn't God a God of great mercy and patience? Why would God bring such a great ruin and destruction to the city that most glorified Him, at least externally? The city that had the temple, the temple being the type of Christ, the incarnate, the place where God would dwell with His people. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. The place where the gospel was prefigured in the sacrifices of the the lambs and the bulls that were offered on the altar that Solomon made. The basin that was carried away into Babylon was the place where the the priests would wash uh, themselves as they prepared to offer these sacrifices, pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Why would God destroy that? Why would God destroy the, the, the temple furniture the building, the glorious gold-covered sanctuary where he dwelt in his spirit behind the curtain, above the holy place, between the cherubim. I mean, this was a place like no other place. This was a place that was uh, figuring the, the glory of heaven itself. I mean, God even told Moses, be careful that you do exactly as I instruct you. And, and, and make sure that what you are doing is accurate because it is a copy. It's a minor little replica of, of heaven itself. And yet we find that the Lord burns in his providence against his own people. And he uses the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the walls of Zion that we sing about in Psalm 48 as we praise God for the walls of Jerusalem that are built up and that caused the nations to fear. And yet now they are ruined. They are broken through. They are destroyed. The temple is burned. The king's house is destroyed. All the great houses and small houses of Jerusalem are wiped out. Why, O Lord? Did you do this? And if you want to get more of a sense of all that I'm describing, read Lamentations, the book by Jeremiah. After Jeremiah finishes his prophecy, he writes these five chapters in Lamentations that talks about the widowed city and the ruin and the desolation of God's people. Well, the reason is because God's people had become so apostate that they were really no longer his people. They may have been his people outwardly. They may have been his people superficially. They may have been his people in terms of the eyes of other nations. But 
what had happened within the visible church was that the invisible church, the true church, uh, began to be greatly diminished. Now, this, of course, is not to say that there were no true believers at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. We know that that's not the case. We know there are the Daniels and the Ezekiels and the Jeremiahs. We know there are the, the God will raise up the Ezra and the Nehemiahs to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We know that God will always have his remnant, at least even in the darkest times of church history. God has had his people to preserve uh, his heritage. Uh, But yet, we are dealing with a period of history of sad spiritual declension that we have been studying for many weeks and now have come to this tragic end. Well, we knew this was coming, didn't we? We knew this was coming because we've read the book of Deuteronomy and we read chapter 28 and we read that God said, if my people will obey me and uh, listen to me, I will bless them in a multitude of ways. And then you have after that God saying, if my people will not obey me, if they will not listen to my voice, if they go after other gods, what am I going to do? I'm going to bring all these curses upon them. And that is what we are seeing. God is being faithful to his covenant. We often think of God's faithfulness, don't we, in terms of his grace, in terms of his mercy. And we say, how faithful is God? But here we see also, as the Apostle Paul says, behold the severity as well as the mercy of God. Behold the severity and the mercy of God to those who refuse his grace to repent and believe there will be severity. And God is bringing a great judgment here. Now, what I want to do is kind of give us a survey here of what we've just read and then bring three main applications uh, for us today. So what do we find? We find that there is now the final king, King Zedekiah, um, who is now under siege. All around, boys and girls, the walls of Jerusalem is a foreign army, an army that speaks a different language, an army and a power and a nation that serve other gods. And they are completely surrounded and cut off. And if you do the math from these verses that are given to us, we know that the siege lasts roughly 18 months. So you could imagine if LaGrange was put under a siege and we were surrounded uh, north, south, east, and west, uh, you could imagine the hardship that would come upon our community if all you had was what was in your pantry and at your local grocery store. And of course, you're competing with everybody else for what's, at the, what's remaining at the grocery store. And need not I remind you what happened to toilet paper uh, only a couple years ago, Okay. So, um, you, you can imagine the distress when it comes to something really important like food. Uh, that the 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 uh, duress that the people are put on, they are brought to an utter famine. The scriptures tell us, uh, even to the point of sometimes cannibalism, and they are they are brought under such great distress. So that King Zedekiah decides to make a desperate move. As we have seen even in common history, where nations that are collapsing 
Sometimes maybe you think Nazi Germany and the Battle of the Bulge, Hitler's last effort to try and break uh, what is inevitable, really, the collapse of their own nation. If he can just bust through the lines, maybe they can turn things around. So Zedekiah, I don't think ever is imagining here that he's going to turn the tide of the war so much, but I think he is saying we can go at least maybe break through the lines and escape into exile, that we can find a somewhat friendly nation. Maybe we can make it down to Egypt and find some refuge there, and we will just be a nation in exile uh, while Jerusalem is brought under the dominion of Nebuchadnezzar. And so in the middle of the night, they, he, Zedekiah and his army uh, go through uh, the gates at night trying to escape uh, through the lines. Now, it seems uh, that they did make some progress because we are told that they are not captured, Zedekiah is not captured till he uh, gets to Jericho, the plains of Jericho. So they evidently were able somehow to break through uh, some of the lines and make a run for it, but they inevitably were caught. The, 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 the Babylonian Empire and army is just too great, too powerful, too many, too well equipped, and they overtake Zedekiah. And then you get a, a sense of the terribleness of this pagan king, uh, that he takes the sons of Zedekiah, and what does he do? He slaughters them one by one in front of his father's eyes. He takes King Zedekiah and stands him in front of him, and then Nebuchadnezzar signals for another son of Zedekiah to be brought in front of his dad and killed, and then another son brought in front of his father and killed until all the sons of Zedekiah are killed in front of his father's eyes, and then he orders that Zedekiah be blinded, that Zedekiah's eyes be put out, so that the last thing Zedekiah sees in this world is the death of his own sons. So you see something of the cruelty of this pagan Nebuchadnezzar and, um, and the awfulness of it. The scriptures do not um, hold back, do they? Uh, when you get a sense of the, the wickedness uh, and the cruelty of, of men. And then, after that, Nebuchadnezzar sends Nebuzaradan, the captain of the army, the bodyguard, to go in. The walls have been breached now, and he burns the house of the Lord. It's the first thing that the historian mentions here. That after the capture of the king, who is a prefigure of Christ, and who himself is led away into Babylon. Now the Babylonians, in verse 9 and following, they come to the house of the Lord, and they burn the house of the Lord. The historian tells us then they go to the king's house and all the great houses, and they burn them all to the ground. They take uh, all the uh, furniture, the holy furniture, which is really interesting when you think about it, because... Uh, God really, in a way, preserves the holy furniture for a future use um, through the Babylonians. They take it away and they bring it into captivity. But, you know, when Cyrus says to go back, they're allowed to take the utensils and all that formerly had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar and send it back. It's very interesting to see that even though God is bringing this terrible destruction, 
He's preserving something of the old temple for future use. And so you get a glimmer of God's mercy and hope that he is leaving the people of God. They take the bronze utensils, the furniture is taken, the bronze sea, the altar, um, the fire pans, the pillars, the stands, all of these things, the great pillars uh, that are 18 cubits high, and they are all uh, taken away. Then the historian tells us that Nebuzaradan and the army, they round up the remaining great people in the city. They specifically mention Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, who is the second high priest, uh, temple officers, the men of war, advisors to the king, scribes of the army, and they are all brought to Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah. And there again, Nebuchadnezzar condemns them all and executes them all. And God's fierce wrath and judgment comes upon the church and on the state. God sees to it that judgment Why? Well, because idolatry was promoted by the church and the state. And who is most responsible for the idolatry in this church and the state? It is those who lead it. The the elders are the most responsible. We have been given a privilege. I speak to my fellow elders here. But we have a great responsibility to maintain holiness and righteousness in God's church. We are most accountable. In fact, the Bible says, let not many of you become teachers because you will be held to a stricter account by God himself. Um, And so we all the more need to examine how we are doing as elders in maintaining the holiness of God's people and the righteous standards of God's word. So these men are executed. Then um, we see that Nebuchadnezzar appoints a governor, Gedaliah. You can read this in Jeremiah if you want more details. Gedaliah is to be the governor of the remnant, the poorest people who are left in the land. They take kind of the best and the brightest, if you will, out of the land because Nebuchadnezzar wants to use them for his own bureaucracy and empire building and uh, leaves the rest to be vine dressers in, in what's left of Judah. And Gedaliah is to be governor over them. But you know the story, Ishmael assassinates Gedaliah. And so even in the midst of collapse, there's more chaos and there's more murder within the people of God. And if you read Jeremiah, the historian mentions it, but Jeremiah goes into much more detail how the people of God do the very thing God told them not to do and they go to Egypt. And and they trust that they will find salvation in Egypt rather than remaining in the land. And it, it just seems like that's it. Gone with the wind. You know, it's just, it's all devastation. It's all over. But there is this one little thing, glimmer, that, and then I'll get to the main three points here. At the end of the chapter, what do we see? We see Jehoiachin. Now that name came up a few weeks ago. You remember Jehoiachin was the first of the kings of Judah to be taken into exile. Remember how some of the sons of Josiah were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And then 
Nebuchadnezzar would take another son of Josiah and put him in charge. And he put Zedekiah in charge, but Zedekiah rebels, and Nebuchadnezzar says, that's it, I'm done dealing with these people. But Jehoiachin, remember, went earlier into captivity before the destruction of Jerusalem. And here, what do we see? We see a little glimmer of hope, don't we? We see that a new king in Babylon has arisen and that this king has told Jehoiachin to come out of prison and he sets him at his table and he even exalts him above the other kings of the other nations that sit at the king of Babylon's table here. And so the historian leaves us this crack of hope that God is still at work in the midst of all this devastation and God's going to bring about eventually a restoration of his people despite the terrible calamity that that has happened here. So what should we make uh, of all of this here? And I want to make three main applications as we close out the, the book of Kings. Number one, um, I think as I thought about this, I think the first thing I wanted us to see here is that um, the Lord takes idolatry and apostasy of his people very seriously, and so should we. The Lord takes idolatry and apostasy of his people very seriously, and so should we. One of the lessons, I think, of the book of Kings for us is that we need to examine ourselves and to examine our own individual lives, our family life, our church life, and our cultural life by the word of God, that we need to recognize that we are, as a church, the people of God. We have these great privileges that are ours in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has told us that to whom much is given, much is to be required. We are supposed to be light and salt in the world. We are supposed to be the representatives. We are supposed to be the gospel, living gospel in the, in the eyes of our neighbors. We are to, we are to be that um, testimony to the truth of Scripture before our neighbors. And if we decline spiritually and give ourselves to idolatry and give ourselves to apostasy, Jesus has said then, how great is the darkness? If the light loses its ability to be light, how great is the darkness? Jesus said, we do not put... Uh, We do not light a lamp to put it under a bushel, but to set it on a a lampstand that we might bring light to our neighbors. And I think we need to ask ourselves, are we bringing light to our neighbors? Are our neighbors seeing the light? Or are you hiding the light? Are we salt? We are the salt of the earth. But Jesus has said, but if the salt loses its saltiness, as it did in Zedekiah's day, then it is good for nothing but to be trampled upon by Nebuchadnezzar. If the salt becomes worthless, then it is of no use. It may as well be trodden by the feet of pagans. Are you salt? Are you salty? Are you full of light and joy and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Is the, is the Spirit's ministry working in and through you to your neighbors? 
Are you a people that love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? That is the greatest commandment in the Scriptures. And we need to be dedicated to God. And the, I think the lesson of many from kings is our need to devote ourselves afresh to the Lord. That the Lord be our first love. That God be the one we serve. We serve no other gods. The history of Israel is so tragic because they took to themselves, even beginning with Solomon, all these other gods allowed to come into the land, into their lives, and they began to worship them and serve them and go after them. And then they took on the ethics of these gods, which are evil, that permitted adultery and murder and, and the rest. And so that bloodshed comes up to heaven, crying out for vengeance, even in the days of Manasseh. God is left with nothing but to judge. And so we should take idolatry very seriously. The New Testament warns us. John warns us at the end of one of his epistles, flee from idolatry, my brethren. Flee from idolatry. Watch out. We are of like nature. We are cut from the same cloth as the Israelites. We too are children of Adam and Eve. We are susceptible uh, to inward inclinations that are evil and wicked and must be put to death in our own lives. We must be a people of holiness, and without holiness, we will not see the Lord, even if we have the name of the Lord upon us. You cannot say, Lord, Lord, and not do as he says. Jesus will say, I will, I will say to you, I, I, I do not know you. And they'll say, but didn't we do things in your name? Didn't we perform miracles? And he will say, depart from me, ye what? Lawlessness. You, ye lawless. Those who are practicing iniquity. We need to examine our lives and the way we use our time, the way we spend our money, the way we um, you know, live our family life. Are we, are we seeking the Lord as an individual? Are we... Are we seeking the Lord as a family? Are we using the means of grace? Are we keeping the Lord's day the best we can for God? Setting apart this day that He has consecrated so that we can serve the Lord, that we can draw from the Lord the grace and the strength and the energy that we need to go back out into those places uh, of darkness, uh, full of light and salt. Otherwise, we, we are good uh, for nothing here. Now, the second thing I want us to see is, is this. This is not the last time God brings judgment on Jerusalem. This history from Kings tells us a lot about the state of things in Jesus' day. Because one of the things that you, when you go to the Gospels, and you get to chapters like Matthew chapter 24 or Luke chapter 21. You might start with Luke. I think it's a little clearer in Luke. Matthew 24 is a harder chapter to exegete because Jesus is dealing with things near and far. But in both of those chapters, what do we find Jesus doing? We find Jesus doing really the same thing that really Isaiah and Jeremiah were doing in their day, warning the people of God that if they continue to walk in their hardened ways and reject God, they too will be destroyed. And so Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21, 
He, Jesus, as remember, he's prophet, priest, and king. But as a prophet, Jesus prophesies that within one generation, God will destroy Jerusalem. And he even, we're coming up, you know, those, who, those churches or denominations that observe a liturgical calendar. You know, we've got, you know, uh, Palm Sunday coming up. And, we, you know, what, do, what does Jesus do upon his triumphal entry? We're told that Jesus weeps over Zion. He weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, her little ones. Why does a mother hen want to gather her little chicks? She wants to gather her little chicks to protect them from the hawks. She wants to put them under her wings for safety. Do you know that they have sometimes found birds in uh, national forests that have undergone great uh, forest fires. They have found mother birds that are burned to a charcoal crisp and sometimes find live little birds underneath them. Jesus was saying he wanted to gather God's people to himself like that mother bird, but so hardened were the people in Jesus' day, just like in the days of Zedekiah, that they were unwilling. You see, when Jesus came, young people, you need to understand, Jesus came as the greater temple. They have something in Jerusalem now even superior to the temple of Solomon, or the second temple here in this case. It's that God is incarnate in a man now, not in a building, in an inner gold room set off by a curtain. But God has clothed himself now in our humanity, yet without any sin, and he's walking and he's talking uh, among us and he's living among us and he's healing among us and he's teaching and he's preaching among us. God is dwelling in the very midst of Zion. Jesus comes into the temple and he cleanses the temple and he drives out the money changers. He says, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And Jesus undergoes the reformation. And the people were to understand that he who was who he said he was, that he was the son of David and the son of God. But the people wouldn't believe. And that what that showed is that their idolatry was as great as it was in the days of Zedekiah. Now, it may not have been as crass in its open bowing down to foreign statues as it was in Zedekiah's day, but it was as real. And you need to remember that idolatry is not always something that can be seen with the eyes. The rejection of Jesus Christ was the rejection of God himself. And there was nothing left for God to do with that generation but to judge it for rejecting the greatest love, the greatest gift, the greatest offer of salvation that God has provided humanity. Now again, that doesn't mean that every Jew rejected Jesus Christ. The church was founded by Jews who were apostles. And many others came to faith. We are told some, even in the book of Acts, even some of the Pharisees came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But a great majority of the people rejected the purposes of God for themselves. They rejected the Lord. And so God, even as he brought a great destruction on Jerusalem in 586 BC, almost 600 years before the coming of Christ, so God brought again a second judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, even as Jesus had prophesied through the Roman army and the general Titus. 
and he destroyed the temple. And that's why for the last roughly 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, there has never been a temple in Jerusalem since. You ever watch the news and you see the wailing wall, you see the Jews kind of praying at the wall doing this, you know? What are they doing? They're praying at the very last bit of temple that's left. And they're missing the point. The point was that they were to seek God through Christ, the greater temple. They're still living in the, in the prefigure of Christ, in the shadows, when the substance of Christ has already come in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prophesies in Luke 21 and Matthew 24 of this great destruction. We don't have time, but you can read it on your own sometime this week where Jesus prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. He longed for Jerusalem. But here's what leads me to the third application here this morning. And that is what we need to hear in the 21st century is this also, that there is another day of judgment coming. There was a day of judgment for the Jews in 586 B.C. There was another second judgment in A.D. 70. And now the scriptures tell us in the New Testament there is a third and final and greater judgment coming. A judgment so terrible and so great that men will actually ask the mountains to fall upon them rather than having to face the wrath of the Lamb, we're told in the book of Revelation. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The wrath of of the lamb. We don't think of lambs as having wrath, do we? We don't worry about lambs too much, do we? And yet, we are told that Jesus Christ, who, yes, as gentle as a lamb, yet will come with judgment and vengeance upon all the wicked. What does that mean for you and me? That means you and I need to know and take with as much utter certainty as these two previous historical events have happened, the certainty that this future event is going to happen as well. Though it may seem at a distance, though it may seem far away from where we are, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Even Jesus in his human nature does not know the day, he told us. But there is coming a day, he told us. And when he comes, it will not be a day of gospel opportunity any longer. It will be the day of judgment. History will come to an end, and eternity will be in its beginnings. And Christ will judge each man according to what he has done in this life. And those who have done works of righteousness, they will enter into eternal life. And those who have not, they will enter into eternal perdition. Are you saying, Pastor, that we're saved by works? Did I just hear you say that? No, I didn't say that. I said you're going to be judged by those works. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But that faith in Christ better have something on the table on the last day for Jesus to look at. The problem with the Jews both in Zedekiah's day and in Jesus' day, is they claimed to have faith, but they did not have the works. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to make certain that we are abiding in Jesus Christ and bearing the fruit of Christ and the works of Christ in our life because we will be judged according to those works. And that's where you get Matthew chapter 25. 
You know, blessed be you because you visited me in prison. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was hungry, you fed me. And we'll say, Lord, when did I see you naked and clothe you? When did I visit you in prison? When you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. What's Jesus saying? He said, because of the works, the works that you did in faith, you did them as unto me. Even though you did them for others, you did it for my sake. And he'll acknowledge that. But there will be others. And he said, I was hungry. You didn't feed me. And I was naked and you didn't clothe me. You didn't care. You didn't visit me. And we'll say, Lord, you know, when? When did this happen? When did we see you? And he said, oh, when you rejected, when you didn't do it to the least of these. So there is a day of judgment coming. And Jesus wants to see our works. That means we need to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to trust in the Lord by grace, through faith, alone in Him. But it needs to be a faith that produces works. Works without works, there is no true faith, is what James is saying. James and Paul are not at odds with one another. There is a judgment day coming. Are you ready for that day? We don't know when that day may be. It may be that the Lord summons some of us um, soon. For others, it may be another 80 years. But there is a day coming. It is appointed unto men to die, and then what? Then comes the judgment, says the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, We will undergo a judgment, but then we will await what? A further judgment. We will, we will be, if you are in Christ, you will be brought presently, immediately upon death into heaven, where your soul will abide and your body will rest in the cemetery until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And at that time when Christ returns and your soul and your body are reunited and glorified, we will then all stand righteous and unrighteous before Christ for the final judgment. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready to stand before God Almighty? Do you feel safe in that day? Are you ready? Are you secure to stand before God? The only way you and I can be secure in the presence of an almighty God with eternal power, invincible, holy, righteous, infinite in all his being and attributes is to have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting in Jesus Christ. The only way any of us stand, being that we are all by nature sinners, deserving of wrath and judgment, is to flee to the refuge of Jesus Christ. And yet here's the good news. Today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. I can offer to each and every person here, in the name of Jesus Christ, eternal life. If you will but believe in Jesus Christ. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to sign a card, raise a hand, walk an aisle. You just believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and you begin to walk after Him with a sincere heart. It's not going to be perfect, but purposefully following after Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe on your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, the Bible says that you shall be saved from this day of judgment that's coming. A day of judgment is coming. A day of wrath is coming. A day of justice and righteousness is coming. Sinners must go to the place of refuge. God has provided a way of escape from this judgment. 
God has provided salvation for us in Jesus Christ. We in the South, we love to talk about being saved. I got saved. Have you been saved? Saved from what? Saved from the judgment of God. Saved from the wrath of God. Have we been saved? Have you been saved? Well, you're saved if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ sincerely. You, are, you have all that you have need of for this life and for the life to come. But if you're not saved, you can believe on Christ. You know, there's nothing left in this world that's worth losing your soul over. There's, there's no amount of wealth. There's no amount of riches. There's no amount of pleasure. There's no amount of drugs. There's no amount of sexual immorality that's worth losing your soul. If you get everything, wine, women, and song of all the kings of the earth and go to hell, you've made a poor trade. Nothing is worth going to hell. Nothing is worth spending trillions and trillions and trillions of years under the wrath and curse of God when God today is saying, trust in me and I'll give you life. You're looking for life, but you're looking for life in the wrong places with the wrong people. Look to life in Jesus, my son. Unite yourself with him. Put your trust in him. Walk with him. Believe on him. Follow him. There's where you're going to find life and have it 